You are in the Grotto Pod. I am in the Grotto Pod. Bridget is in the Grotto Pod. We're all in the Grotto Pod together. And you know who's going to be in the Grotto Pod soon today with us? A bank robber. We're going to have a bank robber in the Grotto Pod. Today, our guest will be Joe Loya, not Joe Joya, unfortunately, which was set out earlier. It's led to some really ineffective Googling. Mm. Joe Loya is the author of The Man Who Outgrew His Prison Cell, published in 2005. And that was sort of a culmination of writing that began... Well, I'm just going to say it. When he was in solitary confinement, uh, after being sentenced to seven years in prison, not jail, prison, for robbing somewhere between 30 and 40 banks between 1987 and 1989. And this is not not a goof. This is not some charade that the writer has conceived of. Right. He's the real deal. And if you read uh, The Man Who Outgrew His Prison Cell, you'll see that there's some pretty harrowing tales uh, of prison life. And equally harrowing, harrowing, toy boat, equally harrowing tales of uh, how he grew up. Um, and it's really, and there's a few twists. Yeah. Along Not the way. what you'd expect from a young Mexican American. <clears throat> Growing up in California. East LA. Yeah. Ends up a bank robber. So uh, it's a fascinating story. And from all accounts, Joe Aloya, not Joe mm-hmm. Joya, mm-hmm. is a fascinating storyteller. Uh, I've spent uh, the last week or so immersed in videos of him telling his story. Uh, and reading his book. And reading his book, which, uh, boy, I powered through that thing. Yeah, it's a it's a page turner. It is a total page turner. <laughs> Even though you know what happens. You know how it ends. You know it has a happy ending. Yeah, so that, well, we assume. We assume it's, it's a happy ending. It's been 11 years. Uh, upon release, um, the book ends with his release. I don't want to give it away, but I just did. Okay. Uh, it ends with his release from prison. But what we don't know is really what's happened since then. Yes, he wrote this book. Um he began writing almost immediately after getting out of prison because while in prison, he had forged a pen pal friendship. We still say pen pal. I guess back well, then, that was pen definitely pal. pen pal. He did not have access to a keyboard no. in solitary confinement. No, he certainly did not. But With Richard Rodriguez. Rodriguez. I'm sorry, that was so hard to say. Richard Rodriguez, who is a you know one of the great essayists of our time, one of the great... I don't know, male voices of California, Mexican-American, uh, masculine identity. I don't know. I don't know how else to say it. Like, what an amazing person. It's kind of like, I mean, in a very twisted and sick way, it's sort of every writer's dream. Right. That you would, well, A, have no distractions <laughs> and be able to work in a very terrible way, <laughs> but that you would not only strike up a correspondence with someone great, but who is interested in you. Right. And so, what? I, I, you know, though I've... One of the problems with blasting through a book the way I blasted through this one is you get great ideas and then you forget them. I know he tells us in the book how he came upon uh, Richard Rodriguez and how he came upon starting this pen pal relationship, but I don't remember what it was. I think he saw him on TV. saw him on TV. On uh, PBS. Just randomly on TV. Well, he had a... It was PBS day in uh, in prison. Why can't I say Rodriguez? I don't know. Just don't say Ramirez, because that, of course, was the Night Stalker. That would be wrong. Um, You know, he had an essay, what would they call it? It was like, you know, essay of the week that he would do on television, Mm -hmm. and I think that's what he saw, but um, we'll let him tell us. In that case, I'm curious to see how PBS came to be on the prison TV. Right. How do you get it switched? Off of he says in the book, he, he yeah. sort of outlines, uh, gives a little list of what most of the inmates would watch, and it wasn't PBS. Um, Perhaps I have that wrong. <laughs> actually, you know what? I think he saw him on Oprah. 
I think he might have been on Oprah, but let's get that from him, not us, because obviously we're we're unreliable sources. Uh, Anyways, he began his writing career almost immediately after his release from prison. Since then, uh, he's written for the L.A. Times, the Washington Post, uh, began as a stringer for the Pacific News Service, um, also has written for TV, uh, wrote a documentary, um, has appeared, I think, as an actor. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, and, and he's friends with the woman who wrote Orange is the New Black. I was just going to oh, close with that by saying, and he's sort of, to, in the, one of the many ways that he's sort of paid it forward is he began a relationship with Piper Kerman, the creator of Orange is the New Black, when she was in jail. Uh, I don't, and I'm not that familiar with the show or her, so I don't know what her experience was like, but I'll let him tell it. But he got to be the Richard Rodriguez. In that relationship. That is such an amazing story. So we've got to it is. that story. You know what's and, equally amazing is yeah. how easily the name Rodriguez flowed off my lips yeah. as opposed to yours. Yes. I'm just I saying. Don't know what the problem is. <clears throat> Some of us are well-spoken. Anyways, uh, <laughs> we, uh, it, uh, oddly enough, on this uh, sunny, uh, pleasant, fair Thursday, we seem to be the only people in the grotto. I think we are quite literally, except for people who it is their paid job because they work for a magazine to be here. Right. We are the Just us. Here. So we got to actually emerge from the grotto pod, 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 pod. You know who that's oh, for? Oh, yeah. I know who. And uh, you know I heard you're not supposed to ever call your podcast the pod. I just did three times. Know, we need to emerge here. from this chrysalis that we call the grotto pod and go wait for our guest, Joe Loya. Because not only is he our first bank robber, he is also the first guest we have not yet met. We, right. We've known everyone else. They're we have. So we'll see by the transitive goes. theory, then, we don't know any bank robbers. But we're about to. So let's go get them now. Correct. Okay. Uh, Joe Loya, welcome to the Grotto Pod. I'm happy to be here. We're happy to have you. <laughs> uh, we're all in here, and we're not going to make a crack no, about how small I mean, it is. We're supposed because to stop making jokes about how small it is. We keep getting in trouble. So we've gone in one week. Well, I don't want to say one week because, you know, these may not get posted in order. But last week, poet. This week, bank robber. Welcome. Poet bank robber. Poet bank yeah. robber. Ah, I know. Is it, you know. Is it writer slash bank robber, bank robber slash writer? Is that not part of your... Uh, title is it still a writer who was a bank robber? Okay, yeah, I mean, it's ex bank robber, whatever it is. Yeah, because I like I my daughter this morning. I said, you know, I'm, I'm a bank robber. And this and she said, ex bank robber. Because if you're a bank robber, you'd scare me. So but I'm an ex bank robber. I just want to say it. But I, but that's a good question. What am I, writer, bank robber, bank robber, robber, writer? And well, you know, it's not like you robbed one bank. No, I robbed 30. No, it was 40. 30, 30 to 40. 30. Yeah. The FBI said between 30 and 40. I think I was closer to 30. And I do want to get there, but you know, the I one thing, the most recent thing, I've taken a ton of notes. I read that's the wonderful. book last week. Okay. But the thing that most recently occurred to me to ask you, I'm just going to ask first, and it is, how has your idea of a writer evolved since it first occurred to you while in the hole? The pen through experience as a stringer for news services and then writing a memoir, which was over 10 years ago now, to where you are mm-hmm. today. You know, when you started, you started with poetry, right? You was like, the first thing that came out was poetry. Yeah. And it just kind of went along the line. But I, I, will you write another book or what, what are you doing now? Yeah, I got a bunch Let's of start with that. Things. So here's the thing. The, the, very interesting. So when I was first writing, actually, it was not poetry. It was not fiction. It wasn't memoir. What I was writing was a hodgepodge because when I first put the pen to the paper and said, I want to get the shit that's out of my head, my head didn't discriminate. It just said, let's start doing this. At some point, it would be like fucking – it was stream of conscious. So – I started realizing very quickly that um, 
it was brought to my attention. I showed a, a, a friend of mine who, um, um, who was a biker. I said, man, check this shit I wrote out last night, man. It's fucking good. You should it was read like it. like a real biker. Like a real biker, like from a biker gang <laughs> not biker. Like, not, not a like, Harley guy with like a Harley jacket. Not like the guy jacket. who's delivering food down here. <laughs> not a bicycle. Yeah. Yeah. To one of the officer's biker. <laughs> okay, yeah. With a, with, with a fucking rubber band around his bottom of his pants. Like a what? No, okay, no, this is like This a is a real guy. biker. I think yeah. his name was Deadeye. Because oh, yeah. he had one yeah. eye stabbed out. I was so trying to remember. It's, it's, not, it's not Satan's okay. disciples. What's the what's the Latino biker gang? In the the Mongols? Yeah, the Mongols. So, no, this was a white boy, a Viking biker. Anyway, so, so Deadeye, I think pretty sure it was Deadeye. Um, I said, read this shit. And because I knew that he would write these long letters. He would sit at his desk and he would write these long letters. Uh, not Not writings, but letters to people. Um, so presumably women. <clears throat> so I read it to him, and he said, "Dude, man, this fucking shit looks like what I write once I've been up all night on meth." <laughs> but back then we called it crystal. Uh, so he's like, "Man, this is what shit I've been up when I've been up all night on crystal." And I and I realized that my he let me read some of his shit when he was on crystal, and he would rip that shit up in the morning. It was terrible. It was horrible because it was like some of those some of those Neil Young riffs that went a little too long <laughs> because it was fucking high on heroin and it sounded good. Well, it's like trying to write Trump. <laughs> It's like it was like it sounds good and it feels good, but it was shit. And I realized it was just too jumbled. So I started trying to parse it out. And like, okay, this shit right here is my poetry, and this over here is my. Now I'm talking about fucking shit that happened to me. This is my memoir. Now over here, this I'm I'm inventing this shit. This is fiction. And so I would just I would start parsing it out, and slowly what seemed to be the thing that came easiest was poetry. And so that's why I say the first things I wrote in there with any kind of confidence was poetry because I didn't have to go far along with it. I didn't have to think through. It was very, it was very <clears throat> authentic, which meant well, it was pretty shitty. But it was prison poetry. So I did throw in, you know, because I was I have a sort of erudite background, a training for the kid who's in philosophy and theology and all that shit. Bible. So What's that? The Bible. Bible. The Bible. But not, not just the Bible, though. No, no, I mean like a lot of yeah. theology and yeah. shit. So, yeah. But the point is that I had a lot of references, so even though it was shit, I could hide a little bit behind it because periodically I would throw in references to Nebuchadnezzar or, you know, or Sisyphus or some shit like that. So I gave it an air of sophistication, but it was, it was pretty shit. So, you know, we were talking before you got in here about, you know, what – what we were interested in learning from you, and I feel like you've probably told your story a million times. Mm-hmm. So we want to—I I, want to sort of approach things in a different way. But good, good, thank you. But we would be doing a disservice to our listeners to not quickly summarize your story mm-hmm. because so, it's so amazing. Because it's fascinating, <laughs> um, and I won't try to do it. Why don't I just have you just a quick summation of how oh, you got really? to be sitting here? Okay. And then I'm going to parse through little pieces of it because I think. I was telling no, Bridget. It's super complicated. It's super, super complicated, <laughs> and it's super not what you would think it would be. I just want to like, say I that. I want to know what that is. Like, and tell me what it is. At least get to that part. What is it not? What surprised you about it? Okay. Um, just quickly for the listeners, you know, Joe's background is he grew up in the projects in East L.A. Mm-hmm. And eventually became a bank robber. If you mm-hmm. just knew that, I would assume many things. First, I would assume Catholic. Mm-hmm. Not Catholic. Not Catholic. I would not assume well-read, and the way you're well-read is because your father brought a lot of literature into your house. I mean, serious stuff. Ser- serious literature. My stepmother brought, and my dad brought serious um, um, philosophy and theology into the house. And my stepmother was Irish-American. I was reading the Bronte sisters. You know, I was reading the Bronte sisters yeah. and all that stuff, for, you know, like ninth grade. And I was getting pummeled. I was, a, you know, I was considered a sissy boy in brown. I'm sure. Mexican little neighbors. I mean, I could fight, but I also, you know, I was also a nerdy kid, really, really bookish. That's the other thing. And really on a path as a youngster – to be 
kind of the apple of everyone's eye. Yeah. You know, Especially except the guys beating you up, of course. But even then, they kind of like you know, they they understood that one of the reasons they were beating me is because I was exemplary. he's the smart guy. I just, yeah, I was a kid who was going to get out of there. It's that that thing about the crabs dragging the, uh, exactly. the one trying to get out of the, bu- the bucket. So, Check the brain on bridges. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got the crab thing going. That was almost a Pulp Fiction quote. <laughs> no, no, the, the big brain, oh. big brain, bridges. very yeah. close. Um, so the thing that. I kept turning around in my head while reading uh, the book. The man who outgrew his prison cell. Yeah, Confessions of a bank robber. There you go. Says, says, says was, what was the main contributing factor to you? I don't even say right, going astray because you were kind of headed in that direction. There wasn't a point where like, oh, now I'm astray. So, and really. Also, I have to say, he's the story of the bank robbing is not the story you would think. Right, activity. right. There, yes, and there's a couple. There's I a couple. Need to find out what that is. There's that a couple is, that's details about a gun that and putting it in somebody's face and screaming in their face and no. you didn't because you were you were the Beirut bandit, but you could have also been the preppy bandit. Yeah, which I was fascinated with. You're robbing banks, but you're also uh, shot. I, actually, I have to ask this. This is just for my own knowledge. Edification. Edification. Do you remember the name of the preppy store that you waited in line all night outside? In Westwood. It was, um, oh, fuck, it's right there on the tip of my tongue. Do you know, are you from West well, LA? Well, no, I'm from Orange County, but there was a place yes, down there. Yes, there was one in Orange County, too. Was it not? called Sousa and Lefkowitz? That's it. Thank you. Oh, because Lord. I used to go down to that one, too, to buy my, my whales with on, on, my, on my pants and my quarter pounder pants. Oh, yeah. Oh. I used to go to Newport Beach. It was in Newport Beach. It was in Tustin. Stuff. Tustin. This I'm five years I'm five years younger than you, but yeah, we stayed out Season all night. Lefkowitz. And we were sitting out all night right there in Westwood. I didn't stay out all night there, but I would go shop down there, because Newport was where I wanted, you know, that was where I wanted I was a Republican, so that was my that was my jam. And that's wow. the part that really I wrote down in my notes today. So you were robbing banks. First of all, I don't know how you were explaining your lifestyle to people. Because okay, you were well, prepping. Oh yeah, I wondered about that. And too. you were golfing a lot too. Okay, so here's what happened in, in the, the story was I originally had um, committed a bunch of crimes. I became a fugitive in in the, in eighty six, I think, to um to Mexico. Um, to Mexico. And then I came back. I got robbed down there. A lot of money stolen from me. So I decided in 86 that, well, you know what? So I've been this petty robber. I'm going to fucking innovate with my story. I'm going to make innovate with my, my criminality. I'm going to bump it up a, get, a bit. Because I was in Mexico, I think um, the ban- bandido idea was, was strong with me. Also, I understood that Pancho Villa during the revolution would come up and rob banks and post offices in, in the United States and then book them back down. So I thought, hey, man, I'm going to do that move. So I came up here. And despite never having robbed anyone by gun or a place, I mean, I took somebody's keys out of their hands once and took their car. But in terms of robbing like that, this was the first time I was going to do it. I bumped up my game. And on the way back the next day into Mexico, I get stopped at the border in my stolen car that I had stolen from From my cars in San Diego. I get busted for all the warrants that I had. So I went and did time in prison. Um... And when I was a fugitive and I came back two years later, I started robbing and had all this money. I told people this was money that I had left over from my criminal days as a fugitive. Oh. And this is money that I had had when I had committed that first crime spree that sent me to prison for two years. And it wasn't two years. It was more like 22 months or 21 months. But the point is it was around two years. And um, so that's how I accounted for it. It's really fascinating to me and, and, and sort of linked in that way is the idea that you didn't turn to crime out of desperation. You turned to crime out of ambition. 
Well, here's the thing. Sometimes those two collapse right into each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was always grandiose. But here's another thing that was happening. Um, I was later diagnosed as being bipolar when I got out of prison. Right around the time I was here at Corrado back in 2003, I started struggling and struggling and struggling. And I, if you know my story, in prison, in solitary confinement for two years, right in the middle of it practically, I had a hallucination that a Were ball boy was in my cell. And I was like, what the fuck is this, man? Because it felt as real as either That was you the turning right point, right? It was a turning point. Because at that point, I was like, I just rolled over and was like, fuck, man. Now, I can't tell the difference between reality and fantasy. And I had had this idea that my brain and my mind was fucking are still trapped, that I was strong. And I knew I was smarter than all those stupid motherfuckers in there. So now this was evidence I was not. Like, I'm just <laughs> like, I'm crazy. it was the, 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 hum, the humility, the humility. Uh, 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 wait, that's not the word. I was humbled, and humility was new to me, and it devastated. It halved me. I was like, "Fuck! I can lie to myself. I can go out here, step out of the cell, and have this pretense that I'm the guy that I was who walked in, but I know that I'm not. I know that I've been fucking cracked, and that stuck with me. That was that was became some elemental thing to me like okay so let's deal with what is joe you're fucked and let's hope you don't slide further down because when other men cracked in prison they would walk out with shit smeared on their body out of their cells or one guy he folded his t-shirt inside out and his, rolled his boxes yeah, up and decided that. he wanted to like be called sally or some shit um and and then another guy just went straight up nuts and he got his little his little um jam packs that you get little jam packets that you get uh, for your toast in the morning, he would just get the jam smeared on the wall and stick it to it. And he had this fruit fly infestation. They had to like break into his cell because he had jammed it shut. They had to break in, go in there, take him out and shower him. And like he was just, he just nutted up. So I knew that. I was like, oh, I, I can disguise it right now, lying on my bed that I'm fucking crazy. But I hope it doesn't go further in a descent where it's manifested that way, right? So that was super humbling. But then instantly became story. Yeah. This is the thing. My trauma instantly became story. I want to get back to the the thing about ambition. <laughs> ambition and desperation. I mean, so, 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 yeah, so the ambition and desperation. When I was younger, I had the um, – I had a sort of grandiosity that's part of bipolar stuff, right? And, and well, you just, were going to save souls. I well, for one, as a kid, I was already told yeah. that I had been saved for special purpose. That God had, I was clutched from death because God had a purpose for me. And when I my OD'd on these meds as a kid, and and everyone was praying and everyone was praying that I wouldn't die. And the doctor said it was a touch and go there. When I came, my dad's prayer was. God, if he's not going to live for you and do great work, take his life now. But if he's going to live, if you, if he's going to do great work for you, let him live. And I lived, so that was like a sign. That was like that was a little legend that I had, right? So already, I was I was embedded in me was was a capacity to think that I was fucking going to do some really big shit. So then I find myself, you know, going to East LA Community College, and I'm like, this is a big shit. This is fucking looking looking around the room. I'm smarter than half the people in here. Not smarter than everyone in there, even the teachers in the cases. I was really fucking bright. Um, But I was fucking troubled. And I knew that after the death of my mother, uh, being, being having sex when I was 12 with a 22-year-old woman, and my dad's beating, the violence, stabbing my dad at 16, all this shit fucking made me confused and desperate. It so is when, the most confusing childhood I've ever heard of. Okay, it because was very on top of everything. This is, if I could just interject, because not only, for listeners, not only 
it wasn't just brutal. Yes, your father beat you. But then he felt horrible afterwards and you had to forgive him every single time. And yes, your mother and your mother passed away when you were nine years old, which is tragic because she was 25. Um, 26. 26. But your stepmother wasn't mean. She was fine. Uh, She was standoffish, but she was she was great. But here's the other thing. My dad was actually beautiful. My dad did a bunch of amazing things, except when he was acting against his conscience, when he would lose his temper. Do you think so he's bipolar? Very, no, but I think he was depressed. Yeah. Like the I grief wonder, of the, the thing that he went through with my mother. Oh, yeah. I, I write about, I write right. about that moment. When you realize when that. When I called him from prison and I said, Dad, why the fuck did you be? I understand every other beating because I've been an immature, insecure, emotional man, um, uh, immature, um, emotional man. I understand everything. Defensive I've been and everything. Petty. But this one beating doesn't make any sense to me. Even Describe though I that one beating. That beating yes. was, oh, man, this is traumatic. I'm going to have PTSD. I'm fucking with you. <laughs> <laughs> I came here to see just to get PTSD. The first Grotto podcast to leave with PTSD. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> so what happened was, um, so um, I was playing football with some friends over at the right. Shia Park. And... Um, um, my dad was working late nights and, um, I, I'm playing football and my, a friend tackles me. I bang my head on the ground. Now the thing is I used to get uh, concussions a lot because I get hit in the head a lot. So it's easy for me to get concussions. Like you see, once a football player starts getting concussions, yeah, he's fucked. To he's going to get concussions. Slippery slope, yeah. So um, I, I got a concussion. I come home. And concussions, in the way it manifests itself for me was I couldn't hold a thought. I just, you know, you would tell me something and I would just, it was like amnesia is what it's like, right? And so I come home and I ask my mother, hey, uh, my stepmother, Brenda, I said, hey, um, when's dad coming home? She says, oh, he's coming home in half hour. Okay, and then I go to my room, come back. Hey, when Dad coming? Like she, she was getting irrit- irritated, and I couldn't understand why. But I had just, I just was kept coming. Back. She finally, my Dad comes home, and she tells him this, and he sits down at the table, and he, like he says, I'm going to ask you, are you lying? And I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. I'm like, no. And then with his right hand, wah, just fucking sucker punches me. I go flying off the chair. He said, get up. I pick up the chair. I'm fucking standing. And I got a fucking head injury. And I'm fucking concussed and fucking amnesiatic and dude fucking pummel, keeps asking me and keeps pummeling me. Now, I wake up in the morning, my fucking jaw, my head, I'm fucked and I got a vague recollection of it. But my brother lays down what happened. He tells me, hey, man, I was doing this, I was doing that. Because I'm like, what the fuck, man? How old were you? I, I, I don't remember if you said it already. Was it like 12? Yeah, it has to be around 12 because I was still in Montebello at the time. So... So um, I grew up, and I never fucking understand what the fuck that was about. But like I said, every other time my dad hit us or whatever, I, as a man, I could see, ah, oh, that's fucking underwritten by pettiness, by mm-hmm. fear, by grief, by that. I can name all this. Mm-hmm. But that one never made any fucking sense to me. I mean, it, I didn't do anything wrong. And and my dad no, normally when things when we got sick my dad was Johnny on the spot because my mother had been sick my dad's thing was to take care of us but this one he wasn't taking care of me and even though he is violent didn't take care of us when he brutalized us that was another thing which I understood as well as you know he lost his temper and then he was in another zone it was rage took over then but this one had none of that shit so I didn't understand I call him when I'm in prison years later I'm working on myself I've changed my life. I have compassion for my dad. I have compassion for myself. And I'm like, I'm doing pretty good. I'm like going to get out of prison in six months. 
I'm feeling like, fucking, I got this. I think I know how I'm going to survive out there. And one of the ways is, you know, you don't you don't judge. You know, it's a little lightweight Buddhist, right? So I get him on the phone and say, hey, Pops, man, I got a question for you, man. What the fuck was that about? <laughs> like, come home. And he starts off by saying, you know, <coughs> you need to know that if I had a child today and he came home with that, I would rush him to the hospital and stuff. He says, but here's what you don't know. He says, you know, when your mother was sick and when she was dying, she would, she was on medications that were so, they were, there was all these desperate measures to try and test, test medicines with her because by the time they discovered she had kidney disease, her body would reject the kidney. She was so far along. So they just gave her a bunch of drugs to try and test it out and they would make her go crazy. And I remember waking up one night. And hearing, get away from me, get away from me. She was throwing things. He's like, it's me, Bessie, it's me, Bessie. And I never knew what that was. And he described that incident. He says, you know, sometimes your mom would not know. It would just be like, poop, poop. One minute she was there talking. Next minute she would look at me, vacant in the eyes, and think I was a stranger, um, you know, kidnapping her. He said, sometimes we wake up and I would try and hide that from you. And I remember that one incident where she was afraid of my dad and she didn't know who he was. And he was saying, it's me, it's Joey, it's me, it's Joey. And so he said, you know, there was times where he was going to take her to the hospital and she would want to jump out of the car and he would be grabbing her, trying to pull over. He said it was really horrible because what was the most horrible thing about it, he said, was that through it all, it was really hard on him. It was hard on him to keep the family. They were young. They were poor. She was suffering. She knew she was going to die at a certain point. It was just hard. The grief was just too much for him. But the one thing that kept him going was that my mother would recognize that he loved her and he was making doing these sacrifices for her. He felt that if she could see that she could see him doing this was was the thing that kept him going. So when she would f- not know who he was, she took away the one thing. Or he was robbed. She didn't intentionally take it away, but he was robbed of the one thing that he needed to stabilize him. And those moments, he said, were the most unstable for him. So when I come home two years later, he was ambushed by this moment where I was saying, I don't remember. And it's just all it did was brought up the memories of my mother. He had Yeah, I was just going to say, it sounds like you're describing PTSD. So so that's the point where I write in the book, I walked away from that, like understanding, you know, I've had some amazing, like sort of observations and moments where I understand us human material in a way that a lot of people can't because of that type of stark and in in really tight in that space contact with another human being's trauma i understood something there it was two things one that my dad and i are our rage is underwritten by the same grief the death of my mother Mm -hmm. but more importantly it was a real it was a confirmation this thing that was kind of out there in my head roaming around but it was this idea that anger always disguises the wound like when my dad did that he wasn't angry he was uh, scared he was um, sad he was wounded and what he did was instantly punch 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 and I was like fuck that's me that's what I've been doing all my life man fucking anger has been disguising and so that was a big turning point for me because I stopped thinking about how can I manage my anger I was like fuck that I'm getting angry where do I fucking find a way get the fuck out of the way anger let me go find and that was my that was a big part of my work did you do that without therapy yeah that was just it's all story it comes to 
everything for me is story. Everything for me is based and rooted in story. Mm -hmm. I only know myself once I started writing my memoir in prison, once I started writing my stories. I thought I knew who I was because I could tell you, oh, these discrete moments in my life. But once I put it on the fucking page... And then you start organizing it, it and you start seeing that this was connected to this and you start finding origins of things and you start finding out the origins of things came earlier than you thought. I thought I became obsessed with money when I was in eighth grade. Turns out I, there was moments of starting okay, so obsessed that's, that's with the economics of things and the, the disadvantages of my life. Much earlier, yeah. But yeah. Well, because you're, you're bipolar. You're in an abusive uh, family situation. Those things are basically the template of being an addict. And you stole money from banks, lots of money. In some cases, I think, what was your biggest haul? 32000 like That's a lot of money. And most people would be using that money to buy drugs, yeah, I no. think, in, from your from your situation. But even in prison, when you were dealing drugs, you weren't doing them. Yeah, why? No, why not? I mean, How'd you dodge that bullet? No, that's easy. That's vanity. <laughs> it's vanity because here's the thing. I was a Protestant. It's Protestant vanity. As this fundamentalist kid, fucking raised in a fundamentalist Baptist church. And so there's still this idea of purity that was very strong in me. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to be this ubermensch, ubermensch isn't a fucking low-level, mm-hmm. like, drug addict who fucking can't control themselves. <laughs> it was all about, like, fucking control for me, right? Wow. And I felt like I needed to separate myself from these scum, these scum criminals who fucking accidental criminals. I wasn't raised in the criminal milieu. I shoved myself in that criminal milieu, and I fucking worked my way up to the top of the criminal ranking by turning myself, innovating with my criminal narrative to become a bank robber because I felt superior to everyone, and I felt I was the philosopher of criminal. I felt it was an, it was volition that got me into crime, though now I recognize it was you, what you call ambition. I call a hodgepodge of ambition because of grandiosity, but also confusion and desperation. Like a lot of my act and my, my going into crime was I was desperate. I was, I was fucking hustling and my brain was Yeah, just you were like definitely a, a hustler. I was like burning friends, ripping off. How can I get to the next thing? It's really, it's really hard to call um, what we criminals do ambition when most of it is underwritten with no sense of posterity. We don't have any feel for, like, the future. That's why we're so fucking impulsive. And when you're doing that, you're just like, where's the move? Where's the move? Where's the hustle? Where's the next thing right in front of you? But while reading your book, I wrote a note to myself. And uh, I don't know if this is because you're telling this story with the benefit of hindsight. But I wrote, really immature and yet really self-aware. Like, really reflective while it's all going on. This is one thing you find that lack, we lack as prisoners. Because even though I had a lot of self-awareness, if you could see, there's major gaps of self-awareness in there as well. Well, there's inconsistencies, definitely. Yeah, because part of it is because I was immature. You know, if he, I have a 10-year-old, and she's fucking way ahead of the game for a 10-year-old. Certainly way ahead of the game where I was a 10-year-old. And there's major gaps there because she's a fucking 10-year-old. Her brain is still <laughs> growing and developing. It's just the way it is, right? So, like, there's that. But for the, the Part of the self-awareness thing was um, I was the other. I was the other very early. And as an other, capital O other, I was a Mexican Protestant in a brown, a sea of brown Catholics in East L.A. I was the scholarship boy in a middle class white school, uh, white school in a Protestant, you know, going parochial school. Um, I was my language separated me from everybody around me. My dad was really erudite 
and my language as a little boy, I was, I, it's, it's, it has to be something like what my daughter's is right now. She kind of talks and I'm like, what the fuck did you do? <laughs> like, that's super well, so, smart. So, like, I, all I'm saying is because it was another, and then my mother started dying. This is what's most important. When my mother started dying, I was seven. And I would look around and I would see everybody around me was fucking, everything was great. They were optimistic. Life was good. They're seven was, years old. They were on a trajectory. They're seven years old. Yeah. Having a good life. And all I'm thinking about is, oh, fuck. Well, all my book reports basically were the tell. I wrote about wow. Genghis Khan. Yeah. Fucking Beethoven, who's <laughs> deaf. I, these intense, I was starting to be attracted to the dense, dark, dark uh, um, textured themes. Because I was feeling all this turbulence in me, and I noticed that none of the kids around me, like, I was like, hey, aren't you interested in this? And I had, they run right past Genghis Khan to fucking Abraham Lincoln, I mean, uh, George Washington stories or something. They read, like, the optimistic Ben Franklin storytelling thing, and I was like, no, I got to fucking get in the dirt. I got to get in the darkness. I got to get in the stories that are on the margins, right? So the self-awareness was I really felt my otherness very acutely very early and um that's and then what happens is it becomes an insecure thing it becomes i'm the little squirrel you know the at the, at the on the jungle floor like what wait what the fuck how am i different how's everyone and you were you were a little like, kid too and i was kind of tiny yeah i was kind of tiny um just off topic but it just occurred to me you were seven when your mother got six is that the significance of the bald kid in your in your cell because he was seven, you were seven. That's the kid who had leukemia, right? Right. Is there any co- contact connection? Do you think well, that's why he showed up? I was so just I don't know where the fuck you're going. Seven <laughs> is the age of reason. And seven might, yeah, might be the age of reason. Well, <laughs> all right, maybe I was reaching. That's perhaps right. it was a reach. But the truth is that the the um, there's a lot of reasons why the boy showed up in that cell because. Um, well, I, I, mean, I don't want to give purpose to it, but it was, it was, what's interesting about that is because the boy came to me in that cell at seven, um, it allowed me to see myself innocent and right. my mother healthy. And, um, and it took me back out of prison. And I remember I'm in, con- I'm in solitary confinement at that point. For I'm like a year, year, right? For a couple of years. But at this point, I'm in a year when I start going to hallucinating. Um, and, you know, there's fucking – we're doing ser- – I'm a serious criminal at that point. In prison, I'm committing crimes. I'm already in there for a homicide investigation because yeah. all the guys I run with. But also um, – um, we're doing fucking shit on that tier. We're setting fire on that tier. We're oh, throwing yeah. shit on the guards. Yeah, we're you're doing poo at the guards. Yeah, or poo. Yeah, <laughs> so clean it up a little bit. You know, I don't call it poo. It Probably not. Life. I don't think that would get me very far in prison. Slammer. Hey, you threw your poo at that you guard. Know, I'll tell you one thing. You use the word poo, you're getting poo thrown on you. Okay. So, right well, down, Larry. Yeah. Listeners, that's you. So let's follow your trajectory. <laughs> at age sixteen, after. Another beating of your brother, I think, not you, no, right? No, it was me. Oh, it was you, right. Yeah. Uh, you stabbed your father in the neck. You'd had it. And then self-defense, I got, my dad beats me. It's wrong one. I'm fucked up. I mean, I got a concussion. Like, you know, it's just the name of the game. And then um, I'm fractured, fractured bones. And I go to the kitchen. I get a knife, a steak knife, and, and take it to the bedroom. I put it under the pillow. And I wait there for my dad to come back. And um, he does come back, round, ready for round two, you know, on the balls of his feet, looking. I mean, yeah, he's like, neck is loose. I can tell what this is, right? And he's like, okay. And he looks over at me, and he looks on the bed, and he looks over at the weights in the corner, looks at me, kind of smiles maniacally, keeps my eye locked on while he walks over to the the weights. I'm like, you think this is fucked, man? Because I've never been hit. This is a new level of savagery, right? This is like. What's he gonna for one? I'm thinking, what's he fucking gonna hit me with the weights, the 25 pound weights, the bar? I have no fucking. Do you think clue. he would have killed you? 
Well, here's the thing. One of the reasons I pulled the knife is because um, he had once, uh, six months earlier, he had told my brother while he was dunking his head in the water, he told him, you should have died instead of your mother, which devastated me, which was the first time I contemplated suicide because I realized I couldn't protect my brother. And I just stood there like a fucking coward watching my dad almost look like he was drowning my brother, right? So that phrase... You should have died instead of your mother while he was doing the the brutality. Those had been two separate traumas to me. The death of my mother. I was grieving that, morbidity of that. And then the, the physical abuse. When he did that, he put those two together. And I started thinking, this dude wants us fucking killed. He wants us dead. He's imagining us dead. So, like, if I'm going to live, I'm not going to live like I did that six months earlier. So it was already in my head. I'm going to have to fucking get out of here. And this is where I innovate with my story. The very first time. This is where I decide what my daughter would say today. She would say, fuck up, Joe. Are you a man or are you a schnitzel? Are you a man or a schnitzel? And so I decide I'm not going to be a schnitzel. I'm going to be a man. And I'm 16 years old. I'm fucking way, uh, you know, 98 pounds out of the shower with a trench coat on holding two <laughs> bags of hammers. You know, I'm like, I'm fucking, I'm really skinny. And this man's been beating me with impunity for a decade. So, but I know one thing about myself. One thing I do know, at 16, I got big heart. I know that about myself. I got heart. And now's the time for me to like, well, <clears throat> one of my favorite phrases I give to everybody who needs advice, I needed to cough up a nutsack and do this. <laughs> so I coughed up a nutsack, pulled the knife out, stand up, and dad sees me and he says, oh, shit, like, Put it down, put it down. And I'm paralyzed because I can't. I've never done this before, but I know one thing. I've already told myself, next shot's a kill shot. I'm going to stab him in the neck. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to take down the beast. So he comes at me, and I start coming at him. And then we go in the middle of the room, and we're just like, uh-oh, I don't get a hit on him. He actually puts his arm up, and I'm like, uh, and he's like, ah. And I'm able to, he like turns his neck away, and I just, bam, slam in, and I start twisting the knife, try to break it off. He's like, ah, you killed me. And he drops. And I say, stand over him. And I remember I said something. I'm sure it was biblical. Like, this is what your sin hath wrought or some shit like that. But it was kind of like, you did this yourself kind of thing. And I run out. My brother's already at the front door. I'd locked him in the bathroom. And we zip on down the street. We go to my aunt's place. My dad survives. And um, interesting side note on this story. My dad and I go into prisons now and talk to abusers, you know, um, uh, batterers about how they can change their life and, and heal their families. That is incredible. My dad told me this story. He told the story to the man. He said... All these men are in there for beating their children, their wives, girlfriends, whatever, right? They're in the special program here in the San Francisco jail. And my dad told him, it's fucking funny. He says, you know, when Joe stabbed me, the first thought I had was, this is on me. The Bible says don't exasperate your children. And I exasperated my child. That was on me. <clears throat> but when Joe started twisting a knife trying to break it off of my neck, I said, oh, that's just Joe being an asshole. <laughs> and fucking everybody in the jail. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great line. But, I mean, it was. It but was then like, your father tried to commit suicide yeah, after that. Yeah, my dad is that thing. It was really, really hard. Was on that him. a turning point for him? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That was his That was his turning point. My my dad needed to be woken up, and I, I, you I woke got him up. woke. And amazingly... <laughs> Can I have one of these, please? Yeah, yeah, of course. Oh, I see. You're not that's, loyal to my no. icebreakers. He's, I have Altoids. And look at... And that's I'm what getting, Joe wants. I'm Sir. getting three because I'm They're, promiscuous like that. <laughs> <laughs> it should be noted that um, they are very small. They are small. Yeah. But, uh, basically, to me, reading your book, a few months after... So you, you're taking your, both your brother and you were put in foster care. Yeah. And yet you're back at, at um, church, you're back at church camp out. that summer. That freaks me out. 
Why? What do you mean? Why well, don't I understand why I want to be back in church? Because I thought when I, you know, when you when you what hear the thing? you're just back on the, the when same. you hear the ten thousand foot summary, like oh, he stabbed his dad at sixteen, life a crime. I'm like oh, that must have been where it all went south after he stabbed his dad. But it didn't. It was. No, a, I, I wasn't. You went I, back and lived with your dad. Yeah. So like this happened in February, my junior year, and um, my brother went back in the at the in the summer. Um, because here's why: for one, my dad was contrite, like seriously contrite, and we now have major supervision. And the thing is, again, I have friends who were raised in a home in which they never knew their parents loved them, never knew what caring is, never knew tenderness, never knew affection, were never not like none of that. I actually had all that. Right. I mean, I, I hang on with my daughter now. She's like I said, she's ten. We talk about art. We talk about music. We talk about share stories and stuff like that. And I'm actually this is modeled to me by my dad. That's what my dad would do. My dad introduced me to classical music. He would sit down and say, hey, "Listen, this is bolero." When they played this, people got up and they thought, "No, stop! They were crazy." They, like he would tell me the stories of like how people were like, "This is too wild, too sensual." People, one woman fainted, and I would be, I would love the stories <laughs> he would tell me about music, about art, about history. Well, you know, I think that raises an important point about abusive relationships. Like what? percentage of the time was it not an abusive relationship most of the time right yeah 95 percent of the time right the five the five percent it did two things it was so stark and so brutal and my father his sadism fucking was was fresh in that moment um that it, it introduced me and altered my imagination about how I could do this to other people. I could terrorize people. That it gave me that. It gave me that. Yeah, that he modeled that to me. But the other thing was, he um, he that that five percent is what made this expose me to this right. the turbulence the, to topsy turvy the, the mixed messages. Of like one minute we'd be here and then boom we're on this other thing and. I like I love absurdity. I love moments of absurdity in story because I have a feel for them, man. You're marching one way, you're playing basketball, life's good, and you get called, Hey Joey, come inside and you're like, oh, Okay, cool, I'm coming inside. Boom. Hey, by the way, your mom died. Oh that's on the right. dialysis machine today. And like, wait, what? I'm like totally ambushed by this this star trauma and I was just fucking having a great basketball game with my friends and laughing and everything and then like whoa my life is radically altered. Well, okay, so I'm you, off on you another mentioned trajectory. story several times. So do you think story is what saved you? Is what Absolutely redeemed you. And not only story, because story that's boring. I'm already falling asleep saying story yeah. changed me. Yeah. It's the heat. Yeah. It's what it is. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the heat. It's these altoids, they're intense. Yeah, they're you know, so it is, what it is is way. it was it was understanding that story is mutable, that my story Whoa. could be mutable, that we as stories, as people, we can edit the fuck out of our stories. We can innovate with our stories. We can introduce a whole – here's – I'll give you a perfect example when this happened to me, when I realized, fuck, I am powerful like a motherfucker with story. I was in prison changing my life. A couple Buddhist tracks come in in my – myself and I read them. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. They're talking about like, you know, it's not what happens to you that matters. It's your reaction to it. 
I was like, because all to me, every time I punched someone or stabbed someone or shot at somebody, it was because you made me fucking mad. Why'd you make me mad? It's your you, fault. It's your fault. Excuse me. Watch out, I'm getting Mike. so excited. I'm, beat, I'm beating up my, my mic. The violence is just so, coming The violence is yeah. intense. <laughs> off the charts. So um, it was always, you make me mad. You make me act. You make me do things to you that I don't really want to do. Sorry for punching you or slapping you, but I ha- you made me. Well, you, my hands were fucking tight. That's, kind that's, of the, that's, a, that's the abuser's that's Bible, right? Yeah, but that's here's the thing. Let's stick with story. I felt that my story was like fate. I st- but one of the things we have, we think about fate. We only think that um, fate is is this thing that only like um, happens to us, and it's always in the bad. And it's um, yeah, it's, it's, it's like it ambushes us, and it's all fate is only this bad thing. Whereas I looked at fate that it wasn't my life wasn't fate. Fatal, fatal, what's the word? Um, it wasn't fatalism like that. I had been living with this fatalism that I couldn't do anything. This is in the cards. This is the way it is. I wish I could change it. And I got this other book in my cell called Metaphors We Live By by George, by George Lakoff. Fucking 1970s, you mentioned that in the book, right? 1970s linguistics book that he was using in Berkeley. I get it in my cell. I start reading this. I'm like, I turn that shit into a self-help book. Because what he starts talking about is reframing shit. And how mm-hmm. a lot of the things that we respond to, we think it's this way because we say it a certain way. But we could actually, it could be something else if you say it differently. And I had seen this already in my life. One man in prison could look at me and I'd be like, that motherfucker disrespect me. Mm-hmm. I got to go fucking stab him. The next day, another guy could look at me the same way. But because that's my camarada Jim, I'm like, I cut him slack. I give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't have the same reaction, even though they were the same phenomena. And so I was, I was already aware kind of of that, hey, these things are different. And it's based not on this, the thing that's happening to me, the story that normally I would say, hey, you made me do that. Sometimes I can make myself not do something. If I have a relationship with that person, I can change it. So this book allowed me to start thinking about how if if things are happening to me in the prison, instead of saying you're doing this and you're forcing me to have to go stab you, maybe I can do this other thing where I reframe it and I'm not compelled to go stab you because even though no matter what you do, I can just fucking change up. Perfect example. This is what it was all coming to. Okay, I can't wait. <laughs> so this one person I was at at that point in Massachusetts, you had to go to the chow hall. And in the chow hall, is basically you stand in line with your tray, you slide it down there, and and every an inmate serves you everything. Chicken tetrazzini, um, fucking uh, uh, green beans, and, and for dessert, you might get a little scoop of pineapple. Um, there's something shit like that. And I would look at the menu before I went down, during count, and I would tell myself, one of those guys... I'm always, I always walk away from their piss feeling like one of those guys didn't give me enough of something or like you're, you're there's um, lasagna and you see, oh man, by the time I'm four men away, by the time I get there, he's, I'm going to, I'm going to get that centerpiece. And then you get there and the guy gives you the edge piece because his friend's behind you and there's friends going to give a friend like that kind of shit. You're like, Hey, don't fucking try that shit, man. You better give me this man or I'm going to fuck you up afterwards. And so he ends up giving you, but like, there's always beefs going on. At the fucking chowhall where I have to check people to let them know, don't fuck with me. Like, fuck with, you know, Jimbo behind me. Don't fuck with me. And and I was always beefing, thinking they were disrespecting me. So I turned it into, I gamed my narrative here. As I said, I am a guy who always gets mad on the chow line. And this is when I was working on myself to change. And I said, I'm going to be the guy who never gets mad. You know how I'm going to do it? I'm going to... Pre- 
I'm going to play a game. I'm going to predict a guy who's going to fuck up. <laughs> and so I would say, okay, it's a chicken franchisini. It was just a guessing game. But I'm like, the pineapple guy, is it going to be the, the salad person? I'm going to go with the fucking pineapple guy. He's going to get fucking... Just give yourself gonna points. Tedious job. And so I would go down there and it's like, the salad guy did me good. Like, oh, look at this. Pineapple dude gives me a fucking bullshit. So, little so like I win or whatever. But the point is, even if I lost, the point is that I went down there with a different attitude, and I and I was already I wasn't going to be ambushed by somebody doing something because even if they did it, I was separated from it. I was like, I was watching, I was observing, it, and I was like, oh, he's disrespecting me. He's giving me this thing which normally I would f- get fucking mad about. But look at me now, I'm changing my story, which is I'm not the guy anymore who gets mad just because somebody does something that in the past has always been a disrespectful act, and that was fucking revolutionary. I'm going to give you time to talk now because you're looking like okay, but question. Uh, my impression or, or the, the, the message you were trying to get across during the prison chapters in the book were that you had to be that angry guy and you had to demand this sort of respect. Otherwise, you know, you'd be someone's girlfriend by the next week. Yeah, but not not in all cases. I mean, there were some cases where it came you to me and I needed to, I needed to be able to stand at a certain point, but not because I believed it, because of performance now. This is very, this is a really ironic, I'm glad you caught that because there's a real irony here. So when I decided to change my life in prison, I had earned a reputation as a guy, don't you fuck with me, right? Yeah. And everyone, the, the, the advantage of being in a two-year investigation for a homicide is even though they found out who killed it, it turned out it was my best friend. Even though they decided to figure out who killed the person uh, and they let the rest of us out, that they always wonder, well, did that, those six guys have anything to do with it? Because they were pulled in to right. begin with. So like everyone kind of assumes, well, maybe he has oh. a killer. Don't fuck with that dude, right? So like uh, some some mystery and danger accrued to me just for being in that investigation, <laughs> right? So I fucking play the fuck out of that. Now, but the point I want to make is this. I decide that I want to start writing, and writing is as a feat as fuck as anything in prison. I might as well be fucking reciting Shakespeare on the wreck yard in my underwear, rolled up to look like panties. I mean, it's fucking bullshit. So, but I'm doing this thing where I'm, and worse yet, I'm doing writing that's exploring myself and and really trying to like. I'm writing at this point. I'm writing like I have a relationship, uh, a pen pen pal relationship with Richard Rodriguez. Yes, says we didn't even get to gay, ask. Amazing, gay as fuck from the first fucking letter. He's like, right. you know, by the way, I'm gay. I'm like, I don't give a fuck. I did wonder. Like he's like, like, I'm a gay and I'm Catholic. I don't I don't give a fuck, man. You want to write? Because I'm fucking every day. Let's fucking do this shit. And Richard Rodriguez is really smart. He's, he's fucking up my game as a writer. But yeah, so we hang out. We we have this pen a pen pal friendship. So I'm writing with him and I'm exploring. All sorts of shit. I'm writing great stuff. He's writing great stuff. It's really this mind fuck. And so um, I don't want anyone to know I'm doing all that because then they're like, go come in here and let's say bend over, man. We got to take your shit. It's like that. Like this is, it's a vulnerability I can't do. So in order to go and become sensitive and soft and gentle with myself and compassionate in the greater world so I can get out and be prepared – I had to walk the prison yard like I was ready to fucking stab somebody in the eye. Unfortunately, you already had a reputation. And, and I had – and I had already made moves on people's eyes, so I already have that reputation. <laughs> so that that was like – that was the weird thing. I, at my, my, my change and my, my, my march or slouching towards decency was underwritten by pose, by male – by this uh, hyper male pose um, that was – Check me out. Don't fuck with me. And, you know, read read these signs on me. And that's when I also became very m- much more aware 
of the performance of maleness. Like, oh, fuck, this thing isn't real. This is bullshit, man. This whole thing is fucking ridiculous. Like, I, the best thing I can do with my daughter in the house all day long is ridicule my, my old self and ridicule any time I see it on Survivor, Amazing Race. I'm like, quick, you see that? That dude's fucking insecure. Because look what he's doing. You see that? He thinks he's all macho and his lips all purse. He's soft. He's soft. He's scared. He's weak. But I am so impressed. Like, that's how strong you were that you weren't scared to a contact Richard Rodriguez in the first place, which yeah. was super impressive that he responded, and that yeah, he's gay, he's out, he's someone who's soft on the outside, and you're not afraid to engage with that. That's as impressive as being a bank no, robber. Because all my road dogs in prison were fucking gangsters. <laughs> Those and the people I ran with and the things I had to endure were life threatening. Mm-hmm. Like literally, like mm-hmm. there was there was times where guards would open the doors. We were never when we were in solitary confinement. We were supposed to be um, uh, escorted out of ourselves mm-hmm. because all of us were like I attacked a man in solitary when we were all kind of walking. They were escorting us. So our hands were on behind our, our back. I had an inmate unlock my my cuffs and then hand me a knife and I went and stabbed a guy. When we were in solitary march, so then I got put in the basement, and in the basement, the only time you can get taken to the bathroom or to the yard was with uh, a lieutenant and two guards. So no inmates are ever supposed to be of us down in the basement. None of us were ever supposed to be together on the same tier, but sometimes the guards would open two cells. Mm. And you knew that everyone in there is fucking dangerous. Right. So every time you heard the guards' keys come on there, we would all get to our cell door You'd because be we didn't know— if they were setting us up, if they had, if they were going to let that guy come over here and try and take our wind. So, like, I was living at a level of of danger and risk and awareness of of that kind of violence all the time. Contacting Richard Rodriguez was fucking like asking you for an alto. It just it doesn't take anything. Plus, right. part of it is remember the grandiosity was. I already I'm a student of writing. I'm not just like a a writer. Like I was. My dad was a preacher. Being a preacher, I was raised with hermeneutics and an understanding of, like, squeezing meaning out of words. So I'm, like, a real, like, always kind of looking for meaning and understanding, like, um, not just, like, the etymology of words, but, like, just where, where, what is this referencing? Is this referencing some Greek myth, Roman myth? Is this referencing some biblical text? What's the theme? Like, I can, I can, I can hear the echoes of that shit all the time. So I felt like after I worked on my writing for a year and a half, and I was reading religiously The New Yorker, New Republic, The Atlantic. I know what good writing looked like. And so I thought, like, you know what? This isn't that writing yet, but it's compelling enough and textured enough that it should be able to hook a writer of some of some strength. <clears throat> well, and since we're, we're not out of time but getting closer than I'd like to be, I want to jump ahead then to when you get out. And I have to say, uh, the closing scene where you're on the plane, you're talking to the woman, and then you see your family, it's really touching. Like, yeah. surprisingly, like, where's the tissue? People it's touching. Cry. Yeah. Cry. That's like, I'm, I'm just so happy when people call and say, man, I, that, that ending, I was weeping. Yeah. Because I wept when I wrote it. I mean, it's infused with a lot of the emotion of the moment. Like, it's a real writing that I made sure that it's I didn't truth. lose any of that. Yeah. But you end there. So we don't get to see you adjusting to life on the outside in life. Memoir. As, a, as a writer. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, eventually. Well, let's give a little preview then. Um, 
you had a job, I think, working in a health food store, maybe, or, or a GNC or something. You had working in a, in a some store. Well, you had a job lined up. Yeah, maybe my you brother didn't. was going to try and get me in a, not a Whole Foods, but it was kind of that thing down in L.A. It was something like that. Sprouts. Wild Pre sprouts. Oh, wild oats. Wild oats. Yeah. Wild oats. I need to supply all the health food references <laughs> in this conversation. That's and you're working, what I'm good for. You're working on your writing. How hard was it? And I guess what were the challenges of going from, well, I'm in prison. I'm not going anywhere. I got all the time in the world to work on this, and I'm working basically in a vacuum to going from there to, okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send my writing out of the world. I'm out here in the world. Yeah. I have to adjust to all of these yeah, things at the same time. This is the most embarrassing part of the story to tell. So I had the most, I had probably the softest landing possible as an ex-con ever, you know, or a convict coming out of prison. Rachel Rodriguez, you know, set me up pretty good. He gave me money. He introduced me to Sandy Close here, the Pacific News Service, which is now the New America, New America Media. Um, Sandy was his editor at the Pacific News Service. Um, when I got out, she said, write, write an essay for me on what you're afraid of. And I was afraid of the first 90 days. Like the 90-day mark is when a lot of guys mm-hmm. fuck up. So I wrote a piece for that for the the – San Francisco Examiner, and Sandy gave me a job. She says, I'll pay you a certain amount of money. I might give me a bunch of articles, you know, op-eds. And I started writing op-eds, and the first one was in the Examiner about three months out. And then the LA Weekly wanted a piece, a bigger piece from that. So LA Weekly contacted me and said, can you write this piece? That piece for the LA Weekly got got me Utney Reader. That got me a New York Times op-ed a couple months later. uh, Like within 1996 and 7. In 1997, there was a North Hollywood bank robbery. And then North Hollywood bank robbery... these two guys walk out of the bank and they start shooting at everything that moves. It was an international event. Everyone was talking about it. And all day people were calling me, you need to see this thing. I'm like, I don't give a fuck about watching bank. I don't I really don't. I'm like, I don't care. I'm like, not, I don't care. But I sit down and watch it like the next morning and I'm watching the footage because it's all over the place. These guys got killed. Police officers had to break into a gun store to get guns to fight these guys. These guys had armor head to toe. Oh, like wow. they were just fucking were shooting prepared. like the Terminator. Yeah. So I look at it and all I'm hearing from the coverage is a botched heist. I'm like, Fuck this! This isn't a botch heist. It's a successful suicide. So I write this op-ed. It gets published in the LA Times, and my career takes off as a talking head because um, Dan Rather's Forty Eight Hour Show contacts me and says, "Hey, will you will you do something for us? Do a video essay?" I said, "Sure." <coughs> now and I was doing video essays like Richard had done for the Jim Lehrer McNeil News Hour back in the day, right? So I started doing that. I started showing up on shows and being given segments to talk on, do video essays for Nightline, See. CNN. Like my life <coughs> grew up that way. And here's the bad thing. I mean, I'm I'm I'm, I'm it's kind of sad, but. I became a guy who people said, can you write, can you write, can you write? Like, I wasn't the writer who started off fucking getting a lot of rejections. I was getting a lot of, I mean, when that piece came out in the in the, um, the LA Weekly, about five months out of prison, I was getting cards from all these um, publishing editors. I wasn't getting agents saying, can I be your agent? I was getting right. editors saying, what the fuck are you writing? We want your book. Because you were a unicorn. unicorn. Basically, you're the erudite criminal. Yeah. And so I ended up selling the book to HarperCollins, and they published my memoir in 2004. And since then, though, it's evolved. You're doing other stuff now, right? Yeah. So the, here's the thing about the, 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 the narrative, right? When I talk about story, um, I started uh, – so I did a one-man show when I was on the grotto back in 2003. Performed at the Thick House here, like 24. And that was cool because when I first um, was rehearsing and I wrote it, they um, had my uh, they they had a reading of it so I could see what it looked like and I stood in the I sat in the um, 
in the bleachers, and I saw the crowd there, and it was men and women reading my story, and that already blew my mind. I was like, oh, fucking women could do this, man. They could own my story this way. Too. This is fucking cool. Like, that was already cool. And then the collaboration of story was cool, because I'm like, they're helping me do it. This is collaboration. This isn't me and my Sal writing these lonely stories to Richard. So that was different. It was already lifting it up and playing with it. Then I get a Sundance thing, and I get to go to um, a creative writing fellowship, and I go to Sundance, and I'm looking at all these theater people putting plays together and stuff. I get to, you know, witness it as a person writes about the arts. I, I learned a bunch of stuff there. I decided I wanted to start writing for TV, so I started writing on um, a TV show with a friend. I got introduced. I mean, I'm, I've, I'm blessed. Like, people have been opening doors for me all day long. It started with um, Richard when I got out. Lisa Morganelli introduced me to people here at the at the Grotto. She, I thought I was just coming to lunch back back you know back in 2002, and everyone after I left was like, "Hey, can you, can hey, you come and join you. us?" And I it was like, "Wow!" And then you know, like I would, I would, I've just had literary people opening doors for me like crazy and being part of my story and encouraging me. I'm super blessed. I'm you know I'm here on the backs of all of that. But also, I get introduced to CAA through a friend of mine, um, the writer Robbie Bates, the playwright Robbie Bates, um, who uh, created Brothers and Sisters. And when I get CAA, he starts dating the head of CAA. Um, um, That's um, not bad. Princess Leia's uh, ex-husband, his name is Brian Lord, and he, he, he got out, he, he divorced her and became gay. Or, well, he was gay, but he ended up coming out as gay. And um, my friend Robbie started dating him, and we have lunch, and he's like, man, what are you writing? It's an amazing story. You got it written? I said, yeah, I just send it in to HarperCollins. He reads it and says, hey, let's represent you. I want to fast forward, though, real quick to what I'm doing now, which is TV writing. I've written for Taken last year. just It's out now. Queen of the South. I'm looking to create another show right now. Um, I'm hoping to hear good news about that in the next two days. We're like really right. We're right there. And if that is, it'll be for Univision. It'll be actually three seasons of a show. Like that's all they order is three seasons. So like I'm in a good place. But the, I wanted to tell you one story about my TV writing thing that's pertinent because it all goes back to story. When I was in the writer's room for a show taken, we're all sitting around these very comfy chairs. And we're coming in. We have this big board where you put, put your cards up for when you're breaking a story. This act here, this, this line is an act, and this line is an act. And we spent a week and a half breaking this fucking great episode. And we came in, we pitched to my boss, like, nah, that's not going to work, man. You know, let's try another one. So we got all the cards, and we shoved them in the corner uh, you know, of the board, we're thinking, we're going to come back to this. This is episode three, episode four. We'll come, it'll fit in here somewhere. And for the whole season, that those cards just mocked us. It was a story <laughs> that we had worked on, that we were invested in, and we never fucking used that story. I don't know where those cards are. I don't know anything about it. But I was, I was watching, I'd sit there every day and I would think, this is fucking life. This is my yes. life. This is everyone's life. We have stories. We hold on to them. They have no purpose anymore. We are never going to be useful again, but we need to hold on to that fucking story about it. It's a little part of ourselves, and it's a fucking crippling, boring, mocking story in the corner of our consciousness nagging at us, and we need to get rid of that shit. We need to fucking get those cards, pull them off the wall, and say, you were fun. We gave you time. We gave you energy. You no longer exist as a narrative in my life. And basically, that's what my life has been. In, changing up stories, getting rid of this, discarding stories, innovating with my story, moving forward. So a lot of the stories that I used to play in my head about this is who I am and this is why I'm fucked and whatever, I'm a victim because of this, whatever, and fuck that. Those, look, those cards are in a stack somewhere, somewhere. I don't know where the fuck they are. I don't look at them anymore. I don't give them any value. I don't fucking fuck with them. And to have that 
concrete example of like we were fucking invested in and it took me a couple weeks to not be fucking resentful that we weren't going to use those fucking stories and I said wow I really examined that and that's I think that's an interesting story I don't know that you is guys an interesting story no wait, wait, I, I, I have to say that is not where I thought you were going with that I, I had I had projected ahead and had that story in my back pocket and we got and now to I the, used it yeah I actually mom, whatever, did too. and it was the perfect thing and we just didn't know the right thing you know no. I had already no. told a story about your story <laughs> and it was the wrong story and I really have to think about that because I think you're probably right I'm sure you're right for yourself I definitely but come on think about on. it ourselves personally how many stories right. did you hold on to about who you were in some other narrative, somebody else's yeah. narrative, yeah. in your own narrative. I was just going to say, I, I hold up. on to them fiercely. Yeah, but then you grow up and you realize, I got to let this fucking shit go, or else I'm, it's not, it's not, it's, it slows my locomotion. It, it, totally. it, it takes up energy. I'm like, we won't, we all have that, right? And some of them we hold on to. I mean, I still, I still have a grievance that from childhood that I even t- I tell everyone about it. I'm not going to tell you here because I don't want the person here. But my intimate friends know yeah. I'm holding on to something that I'm embarrassed. Like now it's mm. kind of letting go. But I've known about this and been talking like it's when, a fucking old <clears throat> shit. But a lot of the troubling ones, the ones that the ones that corrupted me, the ones that had the deepest impact and hold on me, I've kind of let those go. Like I'll, the rage turned my dad. Kind I of mean, thing. that's a, that you can yeah. let that story go. That's incredible. No, I love that dude. That's amazing. Along those same lines, and we really got to wrap it up. But I'm I'm really dying to know what is your relationship with God and religion now? Because yeah. you renounced it violently at one point. But here's the thing. When you first lose your faith, you don't really lose your faith. What you do is you lose that side of the story. And then you go to the other side of the story. So what happened, I realized very quickly, was on one side, I was like, I love you, God. Oh, fuck. Can I suck your dick, God? Kind of thing. And then I went to the other side. and I'm like, Fuck you, God. Fuck you, God. I hate you, God. But it's like still a relationship with God. Right. God is being flipped off. <laughs> with both hands. Both hands. <laughs> like, like when I, yeah, I, I, um, I once went to um, uh, Miley Cars, and I got the guy to give me the, get, get in the car and take me, drive me off to a park lot and he was going to you know test drive the car and when he got out I scooted over and locked the doors and took off and he chased me banging on the hood <laughs> and, then, and, and then the rear view mirror I could see him holding, holding and so that's how I was with God I was like fuck you God fuck you God and then um, but the, 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 it didn't matter what side I was on I was still engaging with God in a very vehement you know passionate way right now it wasn't apathy it, now I look at it like when people say do you believe in God I said I really I just it's not I don't I don't disbelieve it's just like if you told me Joe, do you believe that there's a big chair floating in space past, you know, a billion miles? I'm like, I don't think about a big chair in space. I just don't, well, I don't think about it. So for, in terms of religion, I do think about religion a lot because religion to me is us. Like to me, um, I'm fascinated by all those skulls that they find in these caves 12,000 years ago where they're all stacked in the corner and stuff like that. To me, that's the beginning of religion. Some people died and they wanted to keep parts of them. They want to remember, remember parts of them. They, they, for whatever reason, there's almost like little shrines of skulls in some of these places. And I'm like, look at it. That's what we do as human beings. We, we, this is the, the pro, one of the problems of being human beings I see in the world. We enshrine a lot of temporary things. Because we don't fucking know how to do anything else. And religion is a sort of, you know, enshrining of uh, impermanent things, I feel like. You know, making these little rituals about all this other stuff. So, like, if There's we, stories that's what too. we do. That's, and, 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 and the other thing is I, I, I don't resent religion as much as a lot of friends do because I don't have religion. 
I'm not this guy talking to you right now. I don't have a religious upbringing because I fucking have stories. And the thing that got me out of out of solitary confinement is I went in there with a ton of fucking stories that had a redemptive arc. And it didn't matter what fucking myths they were from. They, I had them. And I'm grateful to my dad for giving me those stories. I'm passing all those stories on to my daughter. But as story. As story, not as. Not as, oh, you got to believe this because this right. dude fucking exists. In fact, Art, we Not as articles of faith. Well, we have barely scratched at the surface of the Joe Loya story, despite him smashing the record for F-bombs dropped during a grotto pod. Oh, shit. Am I supposed to do that? I think the old record was one, but that's fine. I got in trouble for the F-word, and you just... Said I didn't know. You want. Oh, we you feel, know, you know, you no, 30 banks. You can, I think you can pretty much, I, I would say that I would describe the atmosphere as liberated in the, yes, in the, I, in the grotto right the thing, I don't remember saying the F bombs that I, did I say a lot of It's them? a verbal tick. Yeah. It's a verbal tick. It's a verbal tick. It was excellent. Um, Joe, how can they get a hold of you? Website, um, smoke signals, and shit. smoke signals. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, they can, people can email me. Go to, go to the website and email me. Once it was an APB, now they can email you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't have a website have working right now, but yeah, so like, uh, yeah, the people want to email me, they can chat with me. Are they you on Twitter? Yeah, my Twitter at Joe Lloyd. <laughs> I, th- I don't do Twitter a lot. Just, I mean, just I'm had not, a rough you know, life. You forgot his own Facebook. name. Facebook. I'm on Facebook. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm out there. You know, Google me. You can find me. Can, what if there's someone out there who's looking for his or her Richard Rodriguez? That is you know? okay. I'll give you. Yep, I'll quick give you, story. Yep. Several people have do that, done that because I'm actually Richard. I said when I got out, I said I owe you. He said no, you don't. You need to go become other. Pay people. it forward. So oh, yeah. real quick, Ooh, for example, yep. rough man. I don't know if you read Orange is the New Black. Yeah. But we know of it, oh, yeah. whether or not heard, we've read it. Heard of it. No, okay. I read it, yes. So uh, around one of those pages, Piper publishes one of my letters in there from our correspondence when she was in prison. That's Piper you. Kerman? Is That's that her me. name? Piper Kerman. She's, she's like, she, like I you. go oh, into prisons and I empower um, prisoners' voices. I go into writing workshops. But people send me stuff. And I will tell you, this is how it works. I don't have a lot of time now, but when I had more time in the past— if somebody sent me something I would, or wanted to send me something, I'd say, send me 10 pages. And I could tell by the first three if it was right. good. And if it was good and I liked the 10, I would be like, send me 10 more. And I would try to see what I could do for them. Now, um, I work for the Op-Ed Project, a friend of mine, Katie Orenstein, who I met through the grotto. She was a friend of Ethan. Um, I sometimes um, edit, mentor edit. Uh, I'm a mentor editor for some pe- you know, women who are writing op-eds. I try to empower female voice more than anything right now because it seems to me like men have – enough power out there so and anytime I, I not can all of us <laughs> Larry doesn't feel that's true I'm a little, I'm a little powerless perhaps uh, but okay um, I agree with you totally Joe yeah yeah so writer former bank robber former would-be preacher as a child yeah former grotto member Former Notto member, the offshoot from the East Bay. Joe Loya, it's been great having you in the so Grotto awesome. Pod. Thank Wonderful. You. Thank you guys. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, uh, grottopod.com, uh, the Grotto Pod on Twitter. Uh, you, Larry, I want to thank our producers. Uh, Did I you? You? No, go ahead. Thank uh, our producers. I, uh, I was going to honk my own horn there for a oh, sec. No, I'm going to interrupt you then. Please do that. Because we really need to thank Beth Weingarner, Garner, Lee Kravitz, and You need to say Lori. their names correctly, though. <laughs> It has the word wine in it. Beth mm-hmm. Weingarner, Lee Kravitz, Lorianne Doyle for their awesome work in helping this happen. Wouldn't happen if not for you. Mm-hmm. Next time, let's in- install a ventilation system, too. We need to work on that. Uh, you want to get a hold of me, at that Larry Rosen. Uh, hey, real quick, for me, for yeah. Joe Loya, yeah, yeah. J-S-Loya, L-O-Y-A, at gmail.com. There you go. 
Excellent. Happy Quinterest. Thank you to Sugartown for the awesome tunes. Uh, that's it. Take us home. All right. Gretel Band, read, write, and just keep working. Don't rob any banks. Mm-hmm.